Blog Talk Radio. Coming to you uh, live from high above the Mellow Mushroom here in metropolitan Franklin, Tennessee, on a beautiful spring day. I'm your host, Nate Larkin, here with us, joining us via the worldwide interweb, our co-host from the left coast, the Commodore, Aaron Porter, and as always, our fearless, peerless engineer, Mondo Grimes. Hey, guys. Hey, you say it's an extravaganza. It puts a lot of pressure on me to get the unicycle out and do this <laughs> on the unicycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, even more thrilling than the unicycle is the leotard. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already wearing that, so great. I'm already in. I think we need change subjects. This is getting dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fellas, I don't know if you follow my Facebook page. Uh, if you do, then you'll know that yesterday, I'm going to just launch into a personal note. I'm just so grateful. 35 years of marriage, Allie and I celebrated yeah. yesterday. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So it was a good time. You know, I think the 50-year uh, anniversary is gold. 40-year, I don't know what that is. Silver, maybe? We decided 35 is biopsy. We celebrated with a biopsy <laughs> in the morning. And uh, which put a bit of a shadow over the day. We now are kind of twisting in the wind, waiting for results to come back on Friday. But it really kind of highlighted for us the the blessing God has salvaged our marriage and the life we have together. And man, yeah. just I'm just just uh, overflowing with gratitude today. Yeah. Checking well, in with gratitude, I, boys. Yeah. I hear you, man. Or go back in the archives and listen to the Allie Larkin interview as a oh, an yeah. anniversary treat. That was there a good one. Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you did a fine job interviewing her that day, I remember, Aaron. Oh, it was easy watching you, uh, you know, squirming in the corner of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, my wife usually avoids uh, the microphone and the spotlight, which uh, I like because she's unpredictable. She anyway, is yeah. unpredictable. Yeah, well, we're yeah, going to yeah. start off with a mini-meeting this morning. So, Nate, do you yeah. have the app available? You know, I do. Uh, I, and for those uh, Samson guys listening who do not have the app, uh, you can you can have the meeting in the palm of your hand, download it from iBook, not uh, not the not the App Store. Uh, and here it is. We're going to do an abbreviated uh, abbreviated version of the meeting. We're going to do a mini meeting, and then we're going to get to our guest. And holy smokes, do we have a guest! It's going to be terrific. So here we go. Welcome to this mini meeting of the Samson Society. We are a company of Christian men. We're also natural loners who are who've recognized the dangers of isolation and are determined to escape them. We're natural wanderers who are finding spiritual peace and prosperity at home. We're natural liars who are now finding freedom in the truth. Natural judges 
we're learning how to judge ourselves aright, and natural strongmen who are now experiencing God's strength as we admit our weaknesses. As Christians, we meet at other times for worship, for teaching, and for corporate prayer. Today, however, we meet to talk. Our purpose is to assist one another in our common journey. We do so by sharing, honestly, out of our own personal experience, the challenges and encouragements of daily Christian living in a fallen world. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the rules for sharing, just for people who may not be familiar with them or may have forgotten. In sharing, we speak honestly out of our own experience. We tell the truth about ourselves knowing that our brothers will listen to us in love and will hold whatever we say in strictest confidence. confidence. Uh, We try to keep our comments brief, taking care to leave plenty of times for others. We address our statements to the group as a whole rather than directing them toward any one person. And as a rule, we refrain from giving advice to others or instructing them during the meeting, believing that such conversations are best reserved for private moments between friends. The suggested topic today is Drum roll. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with an old study. I'm that was the worst go... drum roll ever. I know. I know. That was terrible. Sorry. <laughs> you are a drummer, right, Mondo? Yeah, I thought I was. <laughs> okay. Today's topic is resentment. Uh, we're not confined to that subject. You may speak about any issue that is currently commanding your attention. The floor is now open. Well, I'm Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Uh, resentment is is not something that I think I deal with very much, but as as we talked earlier about it and it kind of went through my mind, I realized that there is one one main area that probably hardest for me to let go of in my relationships with people and it doesn't happen very often but when there is a situation where I have where I feel I've been wronged and I can't come to any agreement with the other person on that mm-hmm. um, where there's no confession then it's really hard for me to let that go and I I really I love the Greek word for confession, the homo legeo, to say the same thing, to say the same words. It's not just a person saying they're wrong that my heart needs, but that confession is such an important intimacy uh reconnector for me that it's really hard for me to reconnect with someone when they just move on with life as if nothing happened and we don't ever get to that place where we say speak the same words this is what happened in the situation this is yeah. this is where i was wrong this is where you were wrong and i can i can carry stuff with me when i have that relational tension for a long time it's not always just anger towards a person it's just feeling bad that there is an unresolved relationship and i don't even mind if it ends badly, I just want it to be resolved, even if we agree that our versions of a story is totally different and and we're not okay with the relationship, that's okay with me. But the unresolved piece causes me 
so much more anxiety than anything else in relationships. I hate the unresolved. You know, I think that is a form of resentment because it's just that lingering thing that I'll keep going back to and keep trying to uh, force some kind of resolution into it. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's what resentment looks like to me. Well, thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, well, I'm Mondo. Yeah, Mondo. Uh, very interesting. Um, I'm kind of like you, Aaron. I, I don't really, I guess, deal with resentment too much, but um, I, resentment is actually one thing that drives me to, uh, I guess, to find resolve. Um, I, I did, to avoid resentment, I try to push for resolution. Um, because I'm a, I'm a little scared of, of having resentment towards someone in some relationship because I think it brings the ugly out of me. And um, and I really don't want to be that guy. Um, so to avoid that feeling of resentment, I really push towards reconciliation. Whether that be, you know, uh, we, we resolve our conflict or whether we just agree to disagree, um, I, I'm known to really push for some sort of conflict resolution because I really don't want to get in a place of unresolved tension and have this resentment develop because it really makes me ugly, um, uh, the feeling of that. I'm scared of what that can do to me personally. Um, I, I don't like the, uh, the the thought of seeing someone just my flesh crawling and, and I, I, I'm speaking ugly things in my head and I don't treat them right, the thought of, Knowing that somebody's like that around me, it's just it really bothers me. Um, so I don't want to feel that way. So I, I really push towards the opposite end of the spectrum and, and and try to find some sort of resolve. Now that person still may not really care for me, or they still may not want to be around me. But at least I know that I've I've done my part and I've tried to uh, tried to make things either right or either amicable where we can say, okay, well we we at least agree to disagree. And um, you know, resentment is a um, I really haven't dealt with it because I think I run from it so much. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm scared to find out what that would develop in me if I were to uh, wallow in that and, and not have resolve within, within in a relationship. And um, because I think it can really bring up the the bad side and in and, and, and me. And uh, it's very interesting. I think if I've had any resentment, um, it hasn't necessarily been in a relationship necessarily. It's probably been towards myself. Uh, uh, and and not um, being proud of proud of some of my actions, and instead of forgiving myself and moving on, I constantly bag myself. You know, I'll I'll, uh, I'll ride myself. You know, why didn't you this and that? You know, you're you're, you're you know, and it's weird. It's like I, I talk to myself in my head as if I'm talking bad to another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I develop and I, I've done I've done this before. As far as resentment is concerned, more towards myself, and uh, so if I've dealt with it, it's definitely well. I have dealt with it. It's been towards myself actually, um, and not easily forgiving myself for wrongdoing or mistakes, or I should have known better. Um, and uh, I'm easy easier to forgive other people than I am to myself. And um, yeah, so that's what that uh, means to me at this point. But uh, I'm Mondo. Thanks, Mondo. Well, I'm Nate. Hey, Nate. Um, 
I remember when I first got into recovery, as, as you guys know, God used 12-step recovery in my life. The early stages of my recovery to save my life. And so they got some pretty formal steps there toward recovery. And when we got into the, the fearless moral inventory in step four, my sponsor told me that it was time to look at my character defects. And he gave me a hint as to where to begin. He said that uh, typically, resentment is the uh, number one offender, and I thought, well, holy smokes, I, I don't have any resentment at all. Uh, you know, let's go on to the next one, because surely I don't have that character defect. And then through some gentle questioning, um, my sponsor helped me to see that I had been mislabeling an awful lot of my feelings and behaviors and traits and was suffering a lot more from resentment. Uh, than I dreamed I was. A part of it was, um, you know, I also didn't think that I was angry at all. And uh, and I also didn't think I was afraid. I mean, I was so disconnected from all those feelings. Um, but because I'd been wounded by anger as a, as a child and because I'm conflict-averse, I don't like fighting, uh, I, I, at some point in my life, adopted the strategy of um, not admitting that I was anger, angry, um, telling myself that I was quick to forgive and forget. Uh, but what I was calling forgiveness was actually denial. Uh, in order to shield myself from the pain, I didn't want to feel any of the pain. I didn't want to admit any of the pain. I just said, that doesn't hurt. Uh, well, the pain that wasn't acknowledged and wasn't, and the anger that wasn't acknowledged, uh, it wasn't dealt with. It was just buried, and there uh, it gained, uh, you know, it, it gained all kinds of steam. It boiled down there, um, and that resentment fueled um, a feeling in me, a very deeply entrenched feeling of entitlement. That somehow I knew, you know, I, because I was such a long-suffering and patient person, then I deserved an awful lot of slack. Um, and so I was entitled to do things and think things that other people weren't. So that that and that entitlement, which really was fed by resentment, helped fuel a lot of my self-destructive, addictive behavior. Um, my resentment also came from. Uh, unrealistic expectations. There's this old saying in 12-step recovery that every expectation is a premeditated resentment. And that was certainly true for me and continues to be true for me because I, I'm still a guy who tends to uh, be a script writer, to look ahead, to uh, imagine how things should go, how people should react, what they should say, how they should respond respond, especially how they should respond to me or to my message. Um, and when they don't, people have an annoying habit of not reading the script, not following stage directions, just doing what they want to do. Um, that then can uh, produce in me a resentment, which if I'm not honest with myself, uh, owning the expectation and releasing it, surrendering it, um, the this sense of being slighted, the sense of injustice, uh, can feed this very deep 
um, but almost invisible uh, a feeling of resentment. For me, resentment is kind of a you know an invisible, uh, odorless gas that nonetheless is uh, highly toxic. Uh, but I, I, I'm pretty good at disguising the odor of resentment. Although I do have to say that especially during my years, worst years of active addiction, resentment did come out. I mean, everybody else was aware of it, but uh, um, my wife especially, uh, it would come out in a very sharp tongue uh, with a a highly sarcastic humor, um, a habit of putting people down in a malicious way, uh, and habits, by the way, that I have not entirely abandoned. Um, It's because I'm still uncomfortable with conflict. I'm learning to recognize my anger, and I'm learning to be angry and sin not. I'm learning to admit when I'm hurt, uh, and um, and go and experience at least some of the pain that I think you have to go through in order truly to forgive. Um, you know, I'm getting better, but resentments. At my experience is that resentments continue to accumulate. And I have to, it's just like having to sweep uh, the house on a regular basis or crap collect, you know, collects in the corners and under the furniture. Um, my life, I have to um, continually sweep my life of resentments. Uh, and the most difficult ones to acknowledge and repent of are the resentments I hold toward the people closest to me toward my wife, to my grandchildren, you know, who are wonderful and terribly inconvenient, uh, toward my Christian brothers, toward God. I mean, who in the world has the temerity to be resentful against God? Well, uh, the psalmist David was, and um, I'm really no different. So anyway, uh, resentment to me is kind of this... um, I'm resigned to its continued presence, and I'm committed to uh, battling it in the long term. Uh, but I, I still find it difficult to rid myself of resentment, and I need help in that process. Thanks. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Well, there it is, resentment. It's mm-hmm. a, heavy, a heavy secret thing that I think probably creeps up on all of us in these different ways and that uh, we probably try to control with our flesh too often instead of taking it and learning how to walk in the spirit in it. Well, we're going to be right back with our special guest, and uh, I am excited about what she has to say about her journey towards forgiveness. Powerful story, awesome message. So we will be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Picking up pieces on our road. Burned by the system we are under Giving up is all we've ever known Hope is a word left undefined When dreams get pushed aside We are all wounded Trying 
Podcast. You may have seen her on the Dr. Phil show. You may have read about her, heard about her. You may have read her best-selling book. If not, uh, settle in. You are in for a real treat because our guest today is Rebecca Nichols Alonzo, the author of The Devil in Pew Number 7. Uh, she is a dynamic speaker on the subjects of betrayal and the power of forgiveness. She's been involved in ministry, including a church plant, youth outreach, and missions for over 15 years. And she and her husband live in the idyllic little town of Franklin, Tennessee, with their two children. <laughs> How cool is that? Uh, Rebecca never oh. felt safe as a child. In 1969, her father, Robert Nichols, moved to Sellerstown, North Carolina, to serve as a pastor. There, he found a small community eager to welcome him, with one exception, glaring at him from pew number seven was a man obsessed with controlling the church. And man, does the story get ugly from there. It's uh, as mesmerizing as anything you'll see on true crime television. But what a message. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you guys and share this story again. I'm like, God's going to do something because he keeps making me tell the story over and over again. So I know somebody listening, this is for you today. Uh, oh, that's a beautiful uh, thing. Now, it, it's, it's, go ahead, Aaron. You take it away. Well, I was going to say, so Nate kind of set you up there at the beginning of your story. Your family moved when you were young to to this new church in a small town and everything was going good except for this one guy that lived across the street from you right yeah yeah he lived across the street from us but he he sat in pew number seven every sunday which is why the book is titled the devil in pew number seven and it's funny because i get emails from pastors um all over the place saying well i don't have a devil in pew number seven in my church but i've got one in number five and number ten <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, yeah. You know, it's like when I when I share at churches, I'm like, don't start counting pews, okay? We're we're family. We love each other. We forgive each other. But this man, Mr. Watts, sat in pew number seven every Sunday. He uh, had been in control of that church and community for over 30 years. So he was in his 60s, a wealthy county commissioner. He lent money to the farmers. It was a rural farming area. Um, and if they couldn't, you know, pay him back that loan with just unbelievable amount of interest, he would foreclose on their land. And this was land that had been passed down from generation to generation. So it was a it was a big deal. And so he had created his own godfather like reign mm. in this community, um, and then also in the church through his wife. She was the church secretary, and he would 
write a check for the church offering and, and take the cash and then get the tax deduction. He was voting on church business, even though he wasn't a member. His wife was teaching things in the adult Sunday school class that was part of the Bible, but not the whole Bible. So when my parents came to this little town in Whiteville, North Carolina, they they were asked at first to come and speak as evangelists, but then stayed on as pastors. And the reason it's called Sellers Town is because most of the people's last name there were Sellers. It was a tight knit family community um, ex- with the exception of a few, and one of them was Mr. Watts. So when my dad came into this church as a pastor, he said, we're going to set up this church according to the New Testament. If if you want to vote on church business, then you need to be a member. Well, Mr. Watts wasn't a member, so he lost his power there. My dad removed his wife as church secretary so that he could not um, – you know, uh, get that tax deduction illegally mm-hmm. like he was doing. So my dad was probably one of the first people to come into that community and stand up to Mr. Watts, um, which he went along with for about a year and a half. And then um, when he, he had a little talk with my dad and said, you need to go on back to Alabama where you came from because that's not how we do things here. In other words, like the way we do things here is I'm in charge. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. my yeah. dad said, well, if if God called me here, he'll tell me when I'm supposed to leave. And actually, on the back of the book, it says, when the Lord gets ready for me to leave this church, he won't send the message by the devil. And he was referring to the threatening letters that started coming in the mail. And one of the letters read, you will leave Sellerstown walking, crawling, dead, or alive. So mm-hmm. these threats, continued to come. The police were called. We had harassing phone calls, 30 to 60 a day before caller ID, um, Mm. just trying to wear my mom and dad down. And then when that didn't work, he would hire ex-cons to sneak into our yard at night. So as a little girl, I was terrified when the sun would go down. You know, you guys being parents and stuff, you know, when your kids scared, like when my little girl says, I'm scared of monsters, I'm like, sweetie, monsters aren't real. But Mr. Watts was real when I was little. <laughs> yeah, I really yeah. had a real person to be scared of. So he hired these guys to sneak into our yard at night under the cover of darkness and slash our tires and cut our phone lines. So that way we were held hostage in our home for them to do what they would do next, which was drive-by shootings um, that escalated mm. to actual... Um, dynamite explosions. These guys would sneak into the cornfields behind our home and attach dynamite sticks to the mm. corn stalk. So I was taught as a little girl, if you hear tire squeal, get down because that means someone just lit a very long fuse and they're trying to get away before they're caught. And at that point, the FBI were called in and ATF to do major investigations um, regarding the dynamite explosions being set off by our home and our church. And mm. within two and a half years, we had ten, ten explosions go off, which could be heard two or three miles down the street, which brought back some memories when the um, Boston Marathon explosions happened. I told my mm. husband to keep showing that over and over, and I'm like, I can't watch it anymore. I feel so bad for those people, but it's just bringing back 
childhood memories that I lived through of explosion after explosion. I mean, some of these explosions blew out windows of our home and just sent wood and glass through the air, you know, like arrows. Mm. And God protected us during that time. And my mother would read Psalms 91 about God covering us with his feathers and that he would watch over us and protect us. And so I had to learn as a little girl to trust God, even when things like this were happening. I mean, the church grew from a dozen people to over a hundred within a year, which is Mm. huge church growth for a small country church. Sure. So my mom and dad became like family to this community. And, you know, they showed their devotion by staying. And the Mm -hmm. men in the church showed their devotion by standing around our home at night with shotguns just so we could get a good night's sleep. I mean, we're, uh, now did, we're talking about did they, all out war. Did they, did they know that uh, Mr. Watts was the one initiating this? Everyone knew. Everyone knew. But, but because but he hired was... people to do his dirty work, yeah, he would say, I didn't like that fuse or mm-hmm. I was at home. He always had an alibi. He would send his wife out of town when he would um, order the explosions to be set off so she couldn't be implicated mm-hmm. as a, a witness or testify against him, um, he had he had really brought down a lot of terror on that community before we ever got there. My parents didn't know that. Oh. But my mom, yeah, my mom, when people would say, why are you staying? Why don't you leave? You have small children and you're in a war zone. And she said, Christ gave his life for me and I'm willing to do the same. And she said, um, I believe that the hatred and the resentment, like um, you guys were talking about earlier, Mr. Watts resented my dad coming in, taking over um, mm-hmm. his self-appointed position of power. And he said, she said, I believe even if we left, that there is such a murderous spirit on him that he will hunt us down and kill us. And he mm-hmm. had the money and the resources to do it. So she felt like we, we would not be safe even if we did leave. And yeah. The church had grown, and she it would be like leaving your own family, you know? It would be like yeah. leaving the people that you... I called everybody aunt and uncle and grandma and grandpa. I mean, we're talking family, family. So mm-hmm. this went on for five years with Mr. Watts, off and on. He would lay low for a while, and we would say, Yay, God answered our prayer, or maybe he's going to move, or, you know, he's given up. But then another attack would happen. And after five years of that terrorism, um, he found out a way to get a human weapon inside of our home. He found out that my mom's friend had called her, who was married to an abusive alcoholic, and and asked for help. And my mother said, well, come stay with us. You know, I'll help Mm -hmm. you with your two-year-old. Come stay with us. And so um, this woman and her her son came to stay at our home, and Mr. Watts found out, sent his henchmen over with some lies and some more alcohol and just really uh, instigated Harris Williams to do what he did next, which was come into our home while we're sitting down to eat dinner on Easter weekend, 1978. I was seven. My brother Daniel had just turned three, and... Mm-hmm. We watched as this man came into our home with three guns and shot both of our parents in front of us. And so that was hard. You know, every year around Easter time, you know, I'm I'm trying to 
be thankful and, and, and keep my mind on, on good things and celebrate Christ's resurrection, but I'm also remembering that's the time of year that all of this happened. Yeah. You know, at Easter, my mother, you know, did the worship for the church. My dad was preparing his sermon for Easter Sunday, and instead we were held hostage in our home by a, a maddened alcoholic who took his wife hostage in my room um, in my bedroom for three hours. And that's how I begin the book. That's how I mm-hmm. begin the devil in P number seven. I am sent for help. I am mm-hmm. the only one that can run next door to get help from a neighbor. And, you know, I'm just running as fast as I can. I I, I, I didn't know what else this man was going to do in our home and who mm-hmm. else, if he was going to kill my brother. I had to leave my dad who had been shot. My dad was an ex um, a Navy vet. He, somebody said you're never an ex-Navy guy. You're 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 Navy for life. So yeah. I, he was a Navy vet, <laughs> and uh, he was on the six foot four. He was a hunter. We had guns hanging on the walls. You know, I mean, he could have defended us if he had not been shot in his left hip, which hit the bone and knocked him to the floor. Mm. So my dad, my hero. Um, could not help us. He was yeah. he was unable to help us. And what I found out later was that my mother, who was shot um, in her chest, that the bullet had clipped her heart and that she had died within three minutes. She made it to their bedroom to call, um, try to pick up the phone and call for help. And so I found out, you know, that our mom had gone to heaven that day and it was just devastating. We we had to leave. We had to. My dad had to leave his job. His his passion for pastoring and 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 leading people, you know, to the Lord. And and we had to leave our home, our church, our our school, our community, our church family, and move to Mobile, Alabama, so that my dad's family could take care of us because he couldn't. He was on crutches because of his hip. He had a huge pin put into his hip. He limped when he walked, which was a constant reminder. He was never the same after losing our mom. She was his best friend, his partner in ministry, the mother of his children. Uh, and he just he couldn't even speak her name for a whole year after she passed. I mean, he was just mm. devastated at the loss of of losing his wife and best friend. And so, even though we moved to a safe place, there was still a war going on. And it was in my dad's mind. And men handle things differently, obviously, than women do. Men have this instinct that God put in them to protect their family. Mm-hmm. He put it there on purpose, you know, as the leader and protector of the home. And my dad's guilt, his the guilt that he felt over not being able to do that, um, tormented him. And so he suffered with um, nerve problems with mental illness after that he um could hear the explosions going off over and over he was still looking out the window to see who was passing by because that's what he did for years trying to catch Mm. someone before they set off an explosion in our yard and so i watched my dad go through this but i had been taught to pray and have faith and so as a little girl i would make signs and say dear jesus please heal my dad you know, mm. and I would put him up in the house and just thank you, God, for healing Daddy and thank you that he's going to be okay and thank you that he's going to be able to get a job. And he would put his suit on and he would go out for those job interviews and then he would come home defeated. And I just watched that over and over. And so 
my nightmare was not over. Even, mm. You know, I had to say goodbye to our mom, our home. My dad lost his livelihood, and my brother searched for my mom. My little three-year-old brother, Daniel, would just walk around the house going, Mom, Mom, mm. you know, and I would be like, Danny, she's not here. And he said, well, where is she? And I said, she's in heaven. And he said, well, I want to go there right now. Mm. <laughs> it mm. was just a challenge, me being, I turned eight right after mom died and, and trying to explain to a three-year-old, you can't get on a train and go to heaven. You can't drive a car to heaven. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So we all dealt with our grief in a different way. Um, our dad was on medication. He was in and out of hospitals. I flew back with him to North Carolina three months after the murder to testify at the murder trial as an eight-year-old. Mm. So that was just an unbelievable experience for me, um, the total grace of God to help me be able to push through and do that. And then one of the ATF agents um, that knew Mr. Watts was behind all the bombings would not give up on our case, and even after we moved away, he held on and just continued to gather evidence and interview people. And finally, um, two years after the murder trial, was able to gather enough evidence to have Mr. Watts convicted by a federal grand jury and sent to prison for 15 years. So Harris Williams was sent to prison for the shooting, for the murder, mm-hmm. life in prison. Mr. Watts is sent to prison for 15 years. And what's ironic is that he was on the building committee for the, the the city jail, and he ended up going to the actual jail that his name was on a plaque in front of the building. Wow. So that was humiliating to him to lose his power and his reputation. Um, he was two different people. It was the total Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation. On Sellerstown Road, he was a crazed maniac, and then he could put his fedora hat on and go into town, and he was Mr. County Commissioner, you know. Yeah, yeah. Had a lot of political connections. Um, During all of this, do you guys have any questions? I know I'm just talking and talking and talking. (laughs) Uh, Well, I am just transfixed. I'm I'm familiar with the story, but I'm transfixed by your telling of it, and I'm sure our listeners are as well. So as long as you're willing to keep talking, keep talking. Yeah, 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 okay. Well, after um, Mr. Watts is sent to prison, you know, my dad is in and out of the hospital. He's able to sometimes preach when he's asked. He is um, away at a hospital when my brother and I come home one day from school. And by this time I'm 14, my brother is, um, is nine, and we're told that our dad, who was only six years old, Okay, nothing physically wrong with him in the hospital being treated for his nerves had passed away that morning Mm. from a blood clot going to his heart. Now, that just sent me to a whole other dimension of, I talk about resentment, I got resentful Mm. towards God, okay, because... I felt like when when my when our mother died that a man took her life. She was mm-hmm. shot and killed by a man. But when our dad died, I resented God for I felt like he took that mm-hmm. and I got angry with God for two years. I just wrestled with him. I went to school, I went to church, I smiled. 
no one knew the war that was going on in my heart and mind. But I had lost my dad, my my safe place. My yeah. the only person that could hug me like that was my dad. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. okay, you know, no matter what hell we go through in life, as long as I have my daddy, I can talk to him and he'll pray for me and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. But yeah. when I lost that, I fell apart. I was pretty shattered. And um, after a couple of years of that, you know, thankfully God doesn't leave us alone in our pain. He doesn't mm-hmm. reject us, turn and walk away from us like we do to him when mm-hmm. we're so deeply hurt. But after a couple of years of that, I realized I needed God more than I needed to be mad at him. Mm-hmm. I needed God more than I needed to justify that resentment or that this isn't fair thing, you know, mm-hmm. we start when we're about two years old, that's not fair. And then we, mm-hmm. you know, say it when we're about 92 years old, but, um, <laughs> you know, I just I had to, I had to be able to get to that place where I said, okay, I'm exhausted because anger takes a lot of energy. It takes energy and effort to stay angry because we're not really created that way. Um, so I let go of that, and that's when the healing came into my life, and that's when the peace came into my life. How and old were you at that point? I was 16. Mm. I mean, teenage girls are emotional all by themselves, but you add <laughs> in the stuff oh, that we went through. You yeah. Know? And the amazing thing is God, you know, he puts people in our lives to help us do what he's called us to do, which is to live out this purpose-filled life that he has orchestrated for us to take daily, step-by-step. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You know, you you take it one day at a time. And one of my dad's sisters, he was one of seven, but one of his sisters, Dorothy, lived at home with her parents who we lived with. So we lived with my grandparents and our Aunt Dot. And she took us in and continued to teach us about forgiveness. And she taught us Matthew 6, 14, where it talks about, you know, if you forgive others of their sins, then God will forgive you of your sins. But if you don't, then God won't forgive you. And so that was real important for me to learn that when I was young, is that I need forgiveness. We all Mm -hmm. sin. I need forgiveness. But for me to get that forgiveness, God is asking me to extend what I need which is forgiveness. And so she continued to teach us that, and she taught us um, how to know when you truly have forgiven someone, or in this case, let go of the resentment, the way that you truly know, is when you can um, see that person, hear their name, be reminded of that situation, and be able to bless them and pray for them. Mm -hmm. And so I had to be able to get to a place where I could hear the name Mr. Watts, and not just immediately go to five years of terrorism or him putting a hit on my parents, you know, yeah. to be oh, shot and killed. Aunt Dot was throwing down some hard truth on you young kids. That's awesome. She was. That's amazing. She was. She had to now, because did... she was up against something pretty big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, who did you, like, you brought up the resentment that you felt towards Mr. Watts was it focused there even more than Harris Williams? Yeah, because Harris had, had was 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 um an abusive alcoholic. I mean, he had been part of um our church to some degree and my parents had taken him for counseling. He really didn't have a reason to come in and hurt our family. 
Um, he was provoked, which is what the Dr. Phil interview is about, where where we're reunited with Harris, because even though he was sentenced to life in prison, I thought that meant life in prison. It, it meant 21 years, so he was released from prison, and we were reunited with him on the Dr. Phil show in December of 2011, and he, we were able to look at him and tell him, we forgive you, you know, yeah. we we know that you made some choices that shattered our lives and your own life. He had three sons that did not get to, he didn't get to be there for, you know, with yeah. him growing up. He was in prison. So, you know, our actions take us somewhere good or take us somewhere bad. And so his took him to prison um, because he listened to the people that were put up to it by the mastermind, Mr. Watts. So he was really mm-hmm. the one behind everything but never connected to the murder. Mm-hmm. And so two years, you know, at, when I finally let go of that anger towards God and he started healing my heart, that's when we were living with Aunt Dot, who was teaching us about forgiveness, and that's when the phone rang at her home one day. And she said, um, it's Mr. Watts on the phone. And I'm thinking, okay, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. He's been in there about five years. I'm probably his only one phone call today from prison. I'll take it. I'll talk to him. And so that's when I got on the phone and, you know, he said, hello, Becky, this is Mr. Watts with this deep, gruff voice that I remembered as a child that terrified me. Yeah. And so I said, hi, and he said, how are you? And I said, I'm good. And he said, well, I have to ask you a question. I'm thinking, I haven't seen this man since I was a little kid, but okay. And he said, I have to know if you'll forgive me. He said, I can't live the rest of my life without knowing if you'll forgive me. And I was so thankful that I was able to say, we forgave you a long time ago. Because if we had not done that, we would have been in prison with him emotionally. Yeah. And so I was able to say, we forgave you a long time ago. He goes, well, I'm not in prison anymore. And I said, oh, my gosh, now I have to forgive him again. <laughs> yeah, he got yeah. out. He got out after one year. One year. Wow. So that not fair thing came up again, you know. Well, that's not fair. And so um, I listened to him, you know, finish telling his story. He said he got out after one year. He said, but during that one year, I found a relationship with God. And that was my parents' prayer. That's yeah. why every Sunday, sitting in pew number seven, he was hearing the truth. He just had to make a choice whether he was going to live by it or not. Yeah. And so he said, your dad was a good man, and he didn't deserve anything that I put him through. And I said, oh, Lord, the whole world has hope. If Mr. Watts can get saved and give his life to <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> there's hope for the world. So um, he cried, you know, he really humbled himself and cried on the phone and and just said how sorry he was. And, you know, we were able to move forward. But, see, we forgave him before he apologized. We never thought we were going to get that apology. Mm -hmm. That was bonus for us, you know. That That was bonus for us. That was really just a gift from God for him to be able to just call and say he was sorry and that our dad was a good man because he hated our dad. I mean, hated Mm -hmm. him, wanted him dead. He offered a man $100,000 to run my dad over and make it look like an accident. Mm. 
So this wasn't I don't like you kind of thing. This was I hate you and I want you dead kind of thing, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so he knew, you know, when he called us that our dad had passed away a couple of years before that, and um, he said, I'm going to do for you all what I did for my kids. Now, he had nine kids. You wouldn't think somebody that mean could have nine kids, but (laughs) he had nine children. (laughs) And um, my dad actually led two of his sons to the Lord when we lived there, so that made him even madder. He thought, my own family's crossing enemy lines then. Mm. But um, he said, when you graduate from college, you and Daniel will both get $10,000 apiece to buy yourself a car with. So that was his small token. You know, Mm -hmm. he could have done a lot more financially, um, considering that we lost everything. But we just had to say thank you and, you know, move, try to move on with our lives. And, and so, um, a few years ago, our story was published after the book came out. Uh, it was published on CNN.com for four days. And the fourth day is when it made it across the desk of an assistant at Dr. Phil. And she mm. called us. She actually got it to the executive producer who called and said, can you come out to L.A. and do a reunion show with Harris? And mm-hmm. I had already found out that he had been released from prison and I had to deal with that again. That was really yeah. hard for me, yeah. finding out that he had been released from prison. Um for one thing, I wasn't notified by by um, the prison that he was even up for parole, that he was out on parole, that he was mm-hmm. living two and a half hours from us at that point. Wow. Yeah. Um, the justice system failed our families, you know, many times. But then, you know, they we 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 did achieve you know that justice by them being convicted at least. So I, I just really try to be thankful for that. I try. I think I think gratitude and thankfulness keeps resentment at bay because yeah. instead of me saying I don't have my mom now, I have to say I'm thankful for the seven years I had her. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful for the 14 years that I had my dad yeah. and look at what God has given instead of what the enemy took away. Yeah. So that that's the journey that I've been on these years is going through the hurt, the loss, the madness of of living in a war zone as a child and then walking through that process of forgiveness. And that's what I have to explain to people sometimes is that forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. Yeah, yeah. I don't wake up in the morning feeling like forgiving. Some people might. I'm not kind of geared that way. I have to walk through it. It's, It's a process. It's a choice. And um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a I tell people forgiveness is a lifetime occupation. You might retire from your job, but you will never retire from forgiving. <laughs> it is something that you will have to do over yeah. and over and over and sometimes with the same people over mm. and so over and over. Rebecca, at the Doctor Phil show, that was the first time you saw Harris, right? Yes. Since I so had testified walk, against him as an eight-year-old, yeah. Right. So walk, because I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, what what were the feelings you had sitting here on a couch in front of a studio audience and however many millions of viewers having to confront the reality of that forgiveness that God had been working out occupationally in you, and and then all of a sudden here you are, and you were very composed, but what was going on inside of you? Yeah, it it was 
kind of a, a mix of emotions going on. It was, it, it, it was there was peace there on one hand because we knew we had already forgiven him. If we had had to see him face to face and we had not forgiven him yet, it would have been a mm-hmm. different kind of show. <laughs> yeah. Might have been yeah. more like Jerry Springer show. But um, <laughs> we were. <laughs> I'm going to kill you, you know, but it was, it wasn't like that for us. My brother and I went in there knowing that we had forgiven him, asking for God's grace for us to be able to see this man again and tell him face to face, Harris, we forgive you. We don't understand. We know that your choice, you know, um, hindered your life in an amazing way. But we forgive you. And, you know, Dr. Phil was really blown away. I mean, he was kind of looking at my brother and me kind of like, do I need to evaluate these two? Because we just look <laughs> too peaceful. <laughs> I think, and I'm not saying it wasn't hard. It was hard, but yeah. he, I, I just really had an amazing time getting to meet Dr. Phil and see that he really does care about helping people. We got to meet his wife mm-hmm. um, and his son, who's the producer. Mm-hmm. And what was really neat was after we saw Harris, oh, let me back up a little bit. When when I saw Harris, I had all these feelings go through me that I asked my brother about later. And I said, Daniel, what did you feel when you saw Harris? You know, let me get the guy's perspective on this because, you know, I'm an emotional woman. So he said, you know, he said, I felt, I felt sorry for him. He said, I really felt sorry for him that his choices got him where he is today and and he said, I really felt compassion for him. And I said, you know, I did too. Isn't that mm. crazy? See, only God could allow two kids to sit across from their mur- mother's murderer and feel compassion and yeah. the love of Jesus. I mean, yeah. I really felt the love that my parents had for him, for him. And I think that's kind of what was just blowing people away, you know, is just, wow, how can these two kids that witnessed their this shooting and their mother losing her life sit across from this man? I mean, I have family on my mother's side of the family that could not believe we were even going to this interview because oh, sure. they're still working out their forgiveness. You know, yeah. they're still... But, you know, it was so neat because I had people email me from all over the world when they saw that Dr. Phil interview, and then six months later they they re-ran the show um, during their summer reruns, and I, I got another influx of emails from people all over the world. And what I'm hearing, which is so encouraging to me, is if you can forgive these men that hurt your family and shot your parents, killing your mom, then I can forgive the people that have hurt yeah. me. Yeah, And that is so encouraging to me to see people get set free from forgiveness, resentment, hopelessness, uh, grudge holding, all of yeah. those things because they see the power of God and what he can do and how he can take Romans 8.28 and, and just shout it into our lives with a megaphone. You know, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And so that was how I made it through a lot of this hurt and loss and and nightmares and and being traumatized. My dad had post-traumatic stress syndrome, which is now, you know, mm-hmm. a common word to treat that kind of trauma. They didn't have that 30 years ago. Um, yeah. So, you know, we went through 
just a living nightmare, but I went to the Word of God. I found the truth, and the Bible says you will know the truth and it will set you free. And I needed to be free. I needed to be Mm -hmm. free of memories, terrible memories. I needed to be free of of constant reminders, Mother's Day, Father's Day, birthdays, death anniversaries. And my poor husband, bless his heart, you know, God redeems things, and and I hated October 5th for years because that was the day my dad passed away. Yeah. And I hated that day. I didn't want to hear it. And guess what day my husband was born on? October <laughs> 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 5th. Bless his heart. He had to live, he's had to live through so many surprise birthday parties. He's like, he hates surprise parties anyway. And yeah. I said, honey, God redeemed that date for me. He, he, You were born on that date. You know, and he's like, yeah. babe, I'm over it. I'm over the surprise <laughs> party. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, which, oh, God wow. is good. You know, he's God is good. He he uses he uses things that we don't understand for yeah. his purposes and, and to make them good. Turns our morning into dancing. That's right. And some of us know how to dance, and some of us don't. But that's okay. You know, what a powerful and relevant message. I, I spend an awful lot of my time working with addicts like myself. And the one thing that I've discovered um, is that, you know, um, every addict carries hurt from uh, uh, you know, loss, from abuse. Um, the stories uh, that I, you know, the stories that I can tell and that I told others and told myself for years and really formed a, uh, an identity around, and the stories I hear others tell are just tragic. They're just heartbreaking. Um, yours, holy smokes, man, what a story! And yet, for all of us, the um, the way out. There's one door uh, that's available to all of us, no matter where the hurt came from, and that is um, forgiveness. What a powerful, powerful message. Well, I can't believe it. We have already reached the end of our time. Uh, let me, uh, the, uh, the, the, the book, once again, the title of the book is The Devil in Pew Number 7. It's available at fine bookstores everywhere, online, of course, Um Rebecca, if our listeners uh, want to contact you directly, how can they do that? Or if they want interested in having you come to speak at their church or conference or gathering, how can they get in touch with you? My my email is forgivenessisfreedom at gmail.com. Um, nice. I have a website, thedevilinp7.com, beckyalonzo.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> so okay. I, they can find me. I'm I'm out there, um, and I I have been traveling with the book now for uh, almost three years, and and just enjoy being able to see uh, God use it. You know, he he's got a purpose past the pain, so yeah. it's it's just an um, amazing journey for us. And and also, you know, I prayed a prayer a few years ago. I said, Lord, help me to to live out what you've called me to do in a real way. Yeah. Um, and not, you know, because there's plenty of people faking it out there. And I said, you know, just help me 
be able to, to live this out. And I said, oh, wow, you know, three years later, I didn't know what I was getting myself into with that <laughs> prayer because <laughs> yeah. I am tested in that constantly. Are you, yeah. Okay, I'm still being real. I'm still being yeah. real. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm well, thank you so much I'm for sharing that, that story with us. Yeah. Oh, thank I, you for having me. I, I hope it blessed somebody today. I'm sure it did. You know, I checked on Facebook this morning to see if you were among my close personal friends, and you're not. So I will fix that. You will get a friend request yeah. from me within thank minutes. Thank you. And in the meantime, yeah. thank you so much for uh, giving up an hour of your time and uh, telling the story again and sharing it with the listeners here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Thank you for having me. And if you want to be a part of all of this uh, extravaganza wonderfulness, you can write in, send your questions, send your topic ideas for the mini-meeting, and you can reach us at... Uh, at right. Uh, at or at com. All right, at uh, uh, com. We want to hear from you. That's right. Okay. Uh, hey, give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, download Stitcher and listen to it live. If you want to uh, call in, we've got a great show coming up next week. Until then, it's Nate, Mondo, Aaron, our executive producer, Jay Spiegel, saying goodbye from the Pirate Monk Podcast. Pirate. Give yourself time to heal All of my people To renew your troubled mind Everybody say Still searching for relief